particularly uh, tonight we're looking at the issue of, of the, the spiritual dangers of being religious, of being um, what the Bible calls a, a legalist. Um, uh, as Jesus goes sort of toe-to-toe in combat with the, the religious uh, Pharisees and scribes of his day, as they try to impose their traditions on God's people. And Jesus, um, very upset with them, um, uses very strong language uh, at them um, to shock them, to wake them up. And, um, and, um, and so he's going to do that tonight in, uh, in Mark chapter 7, 1 to 13. Um, let's, uh, let's read the passage, and before we do so, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us your word tonight, that you would sink it home in our hearts, uh, that you would keep us from error in our believing and errors in our living by your mercy. Um, teach us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this is God's word. Mark chapter 7, 1 to 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Uh, We want to think about the ways that the religious leaders of Jesus' day um, wrongly embraced tradition against God's word and how we might do that same thing in our own experience. Um, We sometimes look at tradition as kind of silly. I get a kick out of reading the laws that are on the books from a long time ago in various places. Uh, In Lexington, Kentucky, there's an ordinance forbidding anyone to carry ice cream, an ice cream cone in their pocket. 
You know, how, how did that come about? I do not know. In Waterloo, Nebraska, barbers are forbidden to eat onions between the hours of 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. I, I, you know, I guess we can guess how that came about. Nobody wants to smell onion. Um, in Gary, Indiana, persons are prohibited from attending a movie house or other theater and from riding a public streetcar within four hours of eating garlic. In Baltimore, it's illegal to take a lion to the movies. Should you ever want to, don't do it in Baltimore, Maryland, right? In New Jersey, a person can get arrested for slurping soup in a public restaurant. Be very quiet in New Jersey. In Oklahoma, you cannot take a bite of an, out of another person's hamburger. Who knew? And it's against the law for Nebraska tavern owners to sell beer unless they have a kettle of soup brewing. And in Connecticut, pickles, which when dropped 12 inches, collapse in their own juice, are illegal. They must remain whole and even bounce. Or they're, you know, out of something. You know, nobody wants a mushy pickle, I guess. In Lehigh, Nebraska, it is against the law to sell donuts. Holes. Donut holes. Yeah. Uh, you wonder sometimes about how these, you know, laws get on the books and how these traditions form and then shape society. It's very easy to poke fun at traditions, of course, though some aren't bad. You might have noticed we haven't been traditionally meeting in this room all semester, but in a different room almost every week. And, and that's been kind of like utter chaos for us. It's, you know, the tradition of meeting in the same place on the same night of the week as Christian people is actually a good tradition, right? There's a certain comfort in it. There's a certain organizational helpfulness to it. So traditions aren't all bad, but still we're a pretty anti-traditional age, even if we like our traditions. You know, we're kind of out with the old and in with the new kind of people. We like new and improved detergent. They'll never sell you old and unimproved detergent, right? Even if tradition says it's good. So traditions can be silly. Traditions can be comforting, but they can also be spiritually dangerous. They can become rigid rules and inflexible laws that eventually even God himself is rivaled in his authority over us. And if we grow to love rules and laws and find comfort in them, we can begin to think that everybody else should also live the way that we think they ought to live. And we can begin to look for ways to impose our laws on them, legislate the lifestyle for others, and in that way tradition becomes a kind of prison that, that binds people up and doesn't let them enjoy the freedom that God has given them. And so tonight we're going to see Jesus confronting the religious people of his day who are much like many religious people today in Christianity. Okay, this is a critique Jesus is giving within the community of believers or those who say they believe. This isn't a critique of the world out there. So we're critiquing the church tonight, and hopefully we're critiquing ourselves tonight. What I want to do is walk you through this passage and help you see four things about legalism, the legalism of the Pharisees, for us to evaluate our own soul and our own perspective on the Christian life. Okay? 
Um, and so in the first place, let's begin with verses 1 and 2 and, and see there that legalism produces people who are highly critical of other people. So what you have in, in 1 and 2 is the Pharisees gathering around Jesus and even some scribes, it says, who've come down from Jerusalem. Now you understand, they have walked 90 miles or ridden a donkey, 90 miles to check up on Jesus, not because they love what he teaches, but because they despise and hate all that he stands for, and they're looking for ways to hang him. And so they're being hypercritical of Jesus, looking for what's wrong with him and his disciples, and they think they found it, right? The disciples aren't baptizing, it says, their body parts in water before they eat which is the tradition. Okay, well, where did that tradition come from? Not the Bible. Be very clear on this. Okay, this is not a biblical command for people in Jesus' day to do this. This is part of the oral tradition that gathered up around the Bible that had been collected for ages. It's called today, we know it as the Mishnah. Okay, it was actually written down out of its oral tradition, it was actually written about 200 years after Jesus, but it exists even in Jesus' day. And its companion, if you want to understand like the history of Judaism, is the Talmud, which is a commentary by teachers on the Mishnah. Okay? The Talmud is a commentary by teachers on the oral traditions about the Bible. Does that make sense? So here's the deal. It's a series of sayings covering all kinds of topics, including hundreds of rules about how to live right or clean before God. Okay? It goes to this idea of clean or unclean, defiled or undefiled. It, it goes to the Old Testament idea of what's appropriate in worship. You need to be clean to come before God in worship, not unclean. All right, And so Mark lists all kinds of examples here about these washings of cups and pots and other things. There are all kinds of Mishnah sayings about it. For instance, the Mishnah says, A hollow vessel made of pottery can contract uncleanness inside but not outside. If it became unclean, it has to be broken. And no unbroken piece must remain, which was big enough to hold enough oil to anoint the little toe with. Okay? It's part of the Mishnah. Or, a flat plate without a rim cannot become unclean at all. But a plate with a rim can become unclean. Okay? If a vessel made with leather, bone, or glass is flat, they cannot contract uncleanness at all. If they are hollow, they can become unclean outside and inside. If they are unclean, they must be broken, and the break must be a hole at least big enough for a medium-sized pomegranate to pass through. All right, this is the Mishnah. To cure uncleanness of earthen vessels, they must be broken. Other vessels must be immersed, boiled, or purged with fire. A three-legged table can contract uncleanness. I know, you're shocked. Right? If it loses one or two legs, it cannot. But if it loses all three legs, it can, for then it can be used as a board, and a board can become unclean. All right. 
things made of metal can be un become unclean except a door, a bolt, a lock, a hinge, a knocker, and a gutter. Wood used in metal utensils can become unclean, but metal used in wood utensils cannot. I know, I, I gave you about like three times as much as you even would have wanted to hear. Can you imagine trying to get your life ordered properly according to all these crazy laws? It can get terribly complicated. And it seems a bit silly to us, but it was taken extremely seriously in Jesus' day. These were not rules of the Bible but rules the elders came up with that hovered around the Bible. So here's the deal. Here's what happened, right? Here's how, it, here's how that kind of way of thinking of religion shapes you. The man, they thought, who paid the most rigid attention to the external observance of these man-made religious customs was thought to be the holiest. And that created an attitude of self-righteousness because holiness got reduced to a doable list that a person could conceivably, if they tried hard, keep reasonably well. And then that led, inevitably, to a lot of comparison about how well you were doing compared to how well others were doing. And you couple that with the innate tendency of the human heart to treat ourselves with a judgment of charity and others with a judgment of severity. And it was ripe, it was ripe for hypercritical, self-righteous, hyper-judgmentalism, right? Because we so easily excuse ourselves when we mess up, but we imagine the worst about others when they mess up. And so these people have come 90 miles to scrutinize Jesus and his disciples and they see what they think is undefiled hands eating out of undefiled pots and they're livid. They don't get it. They think it's wrong. And Jesus, of course, is undermining that entire system of, of thinking that's how you relate to God. And they hate him for it. Okay? They hate him for it because Jesus is reintroducing the truth. He's re-emphasizing the truth that your acceptance with God isn't based in any way on the record of your law keeping, not to crazy law, not even to moral law, not even to good law. Your acceptance with God is not based in any way on how well you perform, but based on the record of Jesus' own performance. A religion of grace Therefore, produces love, not legalism. It produces humility, not self-righteousness. It produces self-examination, not hypercriticalism of others. Grace ought to make you self-distrustful, Jesus-needy, and patient with the faults of others. Is that the kind of Christianity you have? Or do you treat yourself with the judgment of charity while you treat other people with the judgment of severity? So take a warning here from these Pharisees who are legalists. 
Um, they're arrogant and self-righteous because they think they do it better than anybody else. Now, the second thing I want you to see about legalism is legalism makes God's instructions harder than they really are. Okay, verses 3 to 5 is Mark's explanation for us, Gentiles, because he knows we don't get what was going on. So that's why you have it in parenthetical remarks, right? He's, he's, he's helping us understand what's happening. And understand what's happening. Here's what they're doing. They're not, they're not being bathroom monitors. They're not saying, oh, it's gross you didn't wash your hands before you ate like mama always told you to. <laughs> That's not what they're getting at, right? The issue is clean versus unclean. And apparently what had happened was this. There is, in the Old Testament, instruction and command for a priest ministering in the temple to wash his hands before serving in the temple as a way symbolically of saying he's got to be clean and not unclean. Now what the, what the elders did, what the religious people did, is they thought, well, you know, if that's good for the priests and the temple, then let's all take that home and do it in our houses. And let's say everybody has to do that everywhere. I mean, if it's good for there, it's good everywhere. And what they did was then they, they created their own standard. And they made God's law much harder on individual people than God's law ever was. The tradition did not require, the Bible, I should say, did not require that everybody do this. Okay, but they, these people who we've got to believe were well-intentioned, that they were well-meaning. I mean, don't imagine they were sitting around thinking, how can I make life hard for others? They, they, they thought they were doing good religiously. They were well-meaning, but they were making God out to be burdensome, some ogre. Okay, why? Well, in part, because if I can figure out what I'm supposed to do and I do it, then I think I've done my duty and God's got to reward me. So instead of relating to God as a loving father who delights in his children and saves them by Jesus, by the Messiah that's promised, they begin to think of God as a genie machine. Let's just rub his belly the right way and we'll get what we ask for, right? I do X, God will do Y. I do this, God will do that. I get it right and God will bless me. It's a kind of way of of thinking you're trapping God into blessing you. And, and here's what I want to say to you, if this all seems so long ago. One of the classic ways in college ministries uh, um, that this is notoriously pressed on college students is this. Pushing, because we all well-meaningly, well, can you meaningly, in a very well-intentioned way, want college students to grow in grace and truth. We want you to know Jesus. But by pushing on you the idea that a consistent daily quiet time, if you don't even know what that language is, good for you. It's not Bible language, but the idea of spending time reading your Bible, spending time praying. The idea that a consistent daily quiet time, rather than the gospel, is the reason God blesses or accepts you. We sometimes think, if I can just squeeze out a little time alone with God every day, I will have a good day. God will give me one. 
But if you aren't careful, that oppressively consistent quiet time can absolutely wear you out and drive you nuts and make you think you don't need Jesus anymore or that you're a constant failure to Jesus. And of course, he's not going to bless you because nobody's consistent. By all means, I want to say to you, read your Bible. By all means, don't hear the minister saying, don't do that. Read the Bible. Pray. But be very careful that you are through it seeing Jesus and his grace, the death of your Savior on the cross to pardon all your sin and make you acceptable to God, and that you are then through the Bible being led by grace to the love of the Father. But don't read it as a check on your holiness box so that you can feel good about you because you did what you ought to do and now God's going to make sure you have a good day. Like one college student recently whose mama was telling me, he said to her, you know, when I read my Bible, it seems like I had just have a great day. And when I don't, I don't have a good day. And, and he was confusing, he was confusing the reason he felt blessed from the avenue through which he was blessed. Okay, the, reading the Bible is an avenue through which God meets with you and shows you the love of your Savior. That's a good thing. But reading your Bible is not the reason God blesses you. The gospel is the reason God blesses you. And he'll bless you today, and he's going to be only and invariably good to you today, only because Christ lived and died for you, not Because you've lived and died for him. We live and grow and have life by the birth, obedience, sufferings, death, resurrection of Jesus. Not our devotion. I think it's vital that you you understand that. um, And don't misunderstand that. Or let me take a different example. How do we do this today? How do we make God's laws harder for people? By adding things to God's word that aren't there as a test of holiness, okay? Like, how about this? Oh, I don't know, a prohibition against smoking, okay? We do it in the Christian community. We've, we've now sort of exported it into the non-Christian community, and, and our, our whole world is enamored by not smoking. That's the really righteous and good way to live. Now listen, smoke? <laughs> is it wrong? No, don't call anything sin that the Bible has not called sin. Look, my mom has chain smoked, and I mean one, strike up another one, for 61 years running. She's wasted, I don't know how much money on cigarettes. My dad occasionally tries to figure it out. I discovered early on that I didn't like smelling like mom's cigarette smoke. And I determined not to smoke, and I never have. I do love the smell of a good pipe, but that's a whole different story. But my personal distaste for something doesn't make it sin for somebody else to enjoy it. And even if it is, I know what you're saying, but it's bad for you, Ted, and your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I know that the Bible says the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 
and that you might be unwise to threaten your health by an overindulgence in smoking. I get it. <laughs> but you cannot take, make it a test of holiness. And you cannot call it sin. The Bible doesn't. Look, I know you think it's bad for your body, but God doesn't say that. What about prepackaged, single-serving, plastic-tasting American cheese? Might it be worse for you than a cigarette? It might be. Who of us is competent enough to know for sure? And it might be worse for one person than for another. Could some of you say out loud, partially hydrogenated trans fatty margarine? Okay, look, I don't know. How bad is this stuff? Well, everything's bad for you. Overindulged. Should we call that sin too? Don't tell me to go on eating God's diet. Right? You know, the stuff Adam and Eve were commanded to eat in the garden. You know, veggies. As if it's a sin to eat meat. Jesus ate meat. After the resurrection, on the shore, he cooked fish for breakfast for the disciples. So uh, here's the deal. Um, don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to get anybody to start smoking. Okay. It's not my agenda here. But do you understand how arrogantly self-righteous our entire community has become about smoking? You know, and people have to kind of wander off the reservation to grab a quick one between classes in some poor neighbor's yard dropping their cigarette butts over. That's a whole different story. But because they're not allowed to smoke outside in this community, because we think we have the right to impose on others. Right? And I'm just saying, in the Christian community, we do this thing all the time. Don't ever add to the Bible what is not in the Bible. And don't make God's instructions harder for people or burdensome for people. Don't weigh people down with a false sense of guilt. Don't imagine for a moment you're holy because you've jumped through the right hoop here, friends. You are no more acceptable to God because you don't smoke or because you only eat Gouda and not single-sliced American. It just ain't so. All right, so uh, legalism here, and that's what they're doing. They're making God's law harder for people. Third thing legalism does, it misses the heart. This is the big critique that Jesus gives it, verse 6 to 8. He calls them hypocrites, play actors, okay, characters who are just changing masks for people. And what he's doing is he throw, he's throwing a cup of cold water in their face, right, to get them to realize all this stuff doesn't deal with the heart, and that their heart is far from God. And it's the heart that matters. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, Jesus says. That's what he cares about. They just care about doing sort of the doable customs of man. And if I just get those right, I'm good with God. And they don't even give a rip about what's going on inside the heart. And so God here, his words expose our heart. And God, what does God do when he exposes our heart? He shows us our heart is wrong that we don't have a heart of love for him or others. And God's word tells me I can't get it right by just cleaning up the outside. I need a savior. I need a deliverer. I need a rescuer. 
And so God's word breaks your heart and leads you to Jesus. And a broken and contrite heart is precious in the sight of God, the Bible says. He dwells with the one who is humble and contrite of heart. Not the proud hearted who thinks he's doing the right thing so God will accept him. All right, since we've been critiquing Christianity, let's ask the question, how about this with regard to our hearts? How about, let's just take an example of another issue. How about the, how about the see you at the poll movement? All right, now I can critique it. I don't know if anybody here has participated in it, but I've participated in it. In, in youth ministry, I led see you at the poll stuff with high school students, okay? So I'm critiquing myself here. It sounds like a good idea. Let's get Christians together to pray. Good idea. Let's get them to pray by the poll out front of their school so that we can show that God, how serious we are about wanting him to bless us and so that we can, and this is part of the pitch, so we can show our community how important God is even here at school. What's wrong with that, we should ask? Well, how about this? Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, when you pray, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be seen by them. Right? But when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corner and at the flagpole. (laughs) All right. To be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You got what you're looking for. Go pray in public. Everybody looks at you and goes, oh, wow, that guy, he's really holy, really good Christian. You got your reward. But pray in secret. Shut the door, Jesus says. Look, I'm as guilty as anybody. But the point is, what's going on in the heart? Are we doing things for a show? Are you acting religious and holy for a show? That's why they're so concerned about, did I dip my hands in water properly? Or is your heart in this thing? And legalism completely misses the heart. You don't have to wear your holiness on your sleeve if God is changing you from the inside out. Okay, last point. Legalism. The great irony here is legalism, while pretending to be so interested in getting it all right and doing God's law perfectly, is actually looking for loopholes. Legalism is actually looking for when doesn't God's word apply to me? When can I get out from under it and not have to obey God? Verses 9 through 13, Jesus um, drives his point home by bringing a specific example to them of how they've added to the traditions of God's, to the commands of God, the traditions of men, And they're adding those things actually enabled them to not obey the command itself. Okay? And his example is the issue of kids taking care of their parents when their parents get old. Okay? It's called the tradition of Corbin, uh, this idea of dedicating your stuff to God. Here's the deal. The oral tradition said, not the Bible, that you could dedicate your extra income and your luxuries to God, and that released you from having to use it for your parents in their hour of need. So you were said, you could say, 
mom and dad, I can't help you. Even though Jesus says, the Bible says, honor your father and your mother. And the Bible's so serious about it. It says, if you revile your mom or dad, you should be put to death. And as Jesus is saying, the Bible is utterly serious about children honoring their parents and adult children honoring their elderly parents in their hour of need. Absolutely serious about it. So you should provide for them, mom and dad, just like mom and dad provided for you when you were a baby and you, you couldn't help yourself. Now, that's clear in the Bible. It's part of love to your parents. Now, here's what they did. They said, well, so you might have this extra money and yeah, you, your parents might have a claim on it. But if what you said was, I've given that to God, then it couldn't be touched by your parents. And you didn't actually even have to give it to the temple. You could still use it for yourself. <laughs> but you had called it an offering to the Lord. So you escaped your obligation to your parents that God did command. Sorry, can't help you. In order to love yourself. And you did it by adding traditions to the commandments. Is that clear? So it keeps you actually from obeying. It gives you an escape hatch from caring about what God cares about. And now here's the deal. If that all seems very remote, I realize probably none of you are helping your parents financially and may not have to for decades. What is an example on a college campus of interpreting and making rules about something that function as a way to actually get you out from under obeying God's command. How about the issue of sex? How far is too far? How much can I do, enjoy, get away with, get her to do, and still be a virgin? Still not break the rule about you shall not commit adultery and that you should have no sexual immorality. In other words, how far is too far? far? How, how close to that line can I step without breaking the law? It's like asking the question, when does God's law not apply to me with regard to sexual immorality? When don't I really have to obey God in this area? Because, you know, I really like this thing. Can I redefine sex to mean just Intercourse and nothing else, as one president did so very publicly in your generation. You know, and as long as we haven't done intercourse, then we haven't really had sex. So we haven't really broken God's law. That's the attitude of a legalist, the exact attitude Jesus is talking about here. If your heart is relating to the Lord and your heart is right with the Lord, what question would you be asking? Not, how much can I get away with? But, how can I honor the Lord and protect this person I'm with for their good? That's the question you should be asking. How can we protect each other in such a way that we save the pleasures of intimacy for our future spouse and their future spouse, which is what God intended for that relationship. Does that make sense? 
it becomes an issue of how do I love God and my neighbor, not how do I love myself and get away with as much as I can. Legalism puts you in a position because you think you're jumping through hoops and so God will bless you. Puts you in the position of being hypercritical of others who haven't jumped through your hoop. It puts you in a position of actually adding to God's word commandments God never gave so that you can feel good about keeping those. Looking for loopholes so you don't have to really obey. And it never deals with the heart. But the gospel is about Jesus. The gospel isn't about how you and I just need to clean up and get this right. The gospel is about how Jesus never looked for a single loophole in his entire life. He didn't add a single thing to God's word, but he rightly fulfilled it all from the heart. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he loved his neighbor as himself. And his obedience saves you. And his obedience was obedience even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Your hope, friends, is not that you and I get it right. Our hope is in acknowledging we're the hypocrite, the Pharisee, the legalist. It's in our hearts. And Jesus can save us. Let's look to him to be our redeemer. Let's pray. Jesus, have mercy on us because we are all so wrong and twisted asking all the wrong questions and imagining all the wrong things about um, our relationship with you. Oh, forgive us. Have mercy on us. We desperately need your saving mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing in response to the Lord's word.